Welcome to Radio Free Sunroot. You're listening to the interview podcast, Voices for Nature and Peace, where we discuss issues of ecology, empire, justice, and consciousness. We feature a variety of guests who are aware of the challenges of our time and who are working to address them. Here's your host, Calibri Ter Sonnenblum. Episode 31, The Liminal Space of 2020, featuring Jessica LeBay. Jessica LeBay is a resident of Alberta, Canada, where she is a registered nurse and a gardener, among other things. In our wide-ranging conversation, we talk about the challenges and possibilities of 2020 on both sides of the border. How you doing? I'm pretty good overall. How yeah. are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a strange question, right? Yeah, I mean, are, are we talking about today? Are we talking about in general? Like, are we talking about... I feel like that question is suddenly so much more nuanced. And I appreciate that question being so much more nuanced because I feel like the I'm fine general response has kind of gone to the wayside. People are being a lot more honest these days, so... That's cool. You're having contact with a lot more people than I am. I'm in a really remote area and I'll see no one else except for the person I live on this land with for like literally a week or two at a time, you know? Uh, wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm still in the city. So, and we're fairly opened up here for the most part, except for um, mask. Well, there's mask bylaws now. So most public places are open. You can go to them, but you have to wear a mask while you're in them. So personally, I'm just, I'm still not really spending a lot of time indoors. I'm spending a lot of time outside, but I still, you know, my work hasn't changed. Like I still see people at work all the time and my family and I still see friends. And yeah, I, I actually feel socially overwhelmed right now. <laughs> so <laughs> Okay. So, yeah. so that's where the, uh, how are you question is becoming is getting more nuanced answers for you is in all those contexts. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I've, I've been marveling the last couple of days at, you know, I had three weeks, like back when you, you talked to me in April, I had three weeks where all of my family was home. I couldn't get shifts at work. You know, all of us were home in a very small house with nowhere to go and I had nothing to do. And it was the first time in ages I really had to stop and I really had to slow down and I spun my wheels for a couple of days trying to fill them with online classes and trying to do my usual busy thing. And then I just stopped. I stopped for the first time in ages, which was hilarious because I had been asking for, you know, some way to just take a break forever. And I didn't expect this to be it. But um, but now I've I realized a couple of days ago, I've gotten right back into the flow of the myth of busy and just I am socially overwhelmed in a pandemic like what is the matter with me <laughs> right <laughs> have you learned nothing jessica right you know? right yeah so the 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 what did you call it the cult of no the of being busy the the, the myth of being busy the spell of being busy it's just yeah we do this for ourselves all the time especially living in the city you know well and yeah. i imagine urban people do too but just the pace of the city there's always things going on and this summer where i am 
usually in the summer, like we are the festival city of Canada. So usually there's, there's festivals. I don't even know what's going on anymore. There's so much going on. And I've noticed it mostly over the last five years, it's just been festival, festival, festival. Like everybody's having a festival and I'll often drive down one of the main streets on my way to work. And there's five different things going on that are just kind of conglomerated into one big party. And I'm sitting there going, I don't even know what any of these things are because it's just overwhelming. And so none of that is going on this summer. Yet somehow, you know, the pace of the city still still lives. Like there's still lots of traffic. There's still people going out to restaurants and bars. There's still people. I see a lot more people walking around and the natural spaces and the park places are definitely more utilized this year. But yeah, I had to step back and go, Jessica, what are you doing? Like, you're still working 60-hour weeks. Why are you doing that? And you're still filling up your calendar with, you know, coffee dates here and there and, and obligations here and there and classes and all sorts of stuff. And the pace just doesn't stop around here, hasn't slowed down. Although it's, it feels like it's running um, alongside a different reality that's that's slowly being born too and that I walk down the street and I see businesses closed everywhere that will never reopen like it's it's a very alive town and a ghost town all at once it's very strange it's, yeah it's I just so- mm, I just read an article by a native New Yorker who said that mm-hmm. they feel like New York City has sunk and will not rise again you know yeah yeah I think we're in a very liminal space right now where you know something is is being born while things are dying at the same time. Like it's, I find, I find so often you can't differentiate endings from beginnings because they run into each other. You know, there's very rarely a very clear ending where you can say that definitely ended right there in that moment. Sometimes you can, but yeah, I find oftentimes, you know, death feels, feels new life endings feel beginnings. And I'm seeing that right now. And I'm feeling in that place right now where it's not either or it's both at the same time and probably 10 more things that I'm not even aware of, you know, to fall out of the binaries. (laughs) Yeah. I've often, I I feel like I've gotten that lesson from plants and Mm -hmm. uh, specifically from seed saving because Mm -hmm. seeds um, are of course living things, you know, yes, like they are literally alive and a seed can die in that if a seed gets too old, it's not going to germinate anymore or dry out or get too hot or whatever. And so you look at like, you know, say, you know, a sunflower seed and you plant it and you get this like, (laughs) you know, you know, huge sunflower that's taller than you, you know, produces all these seeds and then the sunflower dies. Oh, that's the end of the sunflower. Well, is it the end of the sunflower? Because now there's, you know, 200 (laughs) of these things and like the, the, the chain of, of livingness there never breaks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful realization and that life continues regardless of if the individual continues like life i don't know this whole world seems geared towards life at all costs no matter what yeah yeah and in the case of the plants it's just the fact that it's taking different shapes at different points and so and so then it feels like what we declare to be the beginning and the end is just the arbitrary distinction that we're making yeah, exactly. It's it's us doing something to it. It's us trying to rationalize it. Yeah, which is something that I've been contending with so much lately. It's, it's almost like the rational Western mind is seeing itself in the mirror for the first time, at least in my experience. And 
it is the strangest thing to know that, you know, we're trying to apply these concepts to things and we're trying to, we're, we're always trying to get a hold of something and explain it perfectly instead of uh, lean into our intuition and our feeling and to, to understand that, you know, sometimes there's just no, no English words. Sometimes there's no actual words for what we're experiencing. There's just a feeling and that's okay. Yeah. And so you feel like, I mean, I feel like too, but that, that we've just been entering a period of more of this being prominent. I feel like in my own awareness, I am feeling again, because I don't necessarily have the words all the time to explain away what's going on in front of me. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily have an article to read that exactly hits what I'm feeling in my gut. And in that space of, of not knowing in that space of, of, yeah, not having my language uh, falter in many, many ways, I'm having to lean into something different that's unfamiliar to me. And there's blessings in that for sure. There's big, there's big blessings in that. Yeah, I'm leaning into the I don't know, and I don't have to know, not in the way that we're used to knowing right. all the time. I don't have to explain, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, so, it's even in my language, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And so I, I feel like um, partly what you're talking about is just the fact that there's been such a break with the normal, really, for yeah. for everyone, really. Yeah, well, and I... I guess it depends on what you're describing as normal, you know, normal for whom, like there's so many different normals. I think that there's just been, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the word. See, this is the problem right now is that I'm trying to capture something that I can, I can feel it and I can see bits of it, but I can't necessarily describe it in a definitive way. And that's what there's been a break in for me is, is suddenly I have this realization of, I guess the story has been broken, like the dominant story, the story that we were all just kind of feeding, you know, this, this hamster wheel that we were all kind of, and I don't want to say we all because, you know, not, not necessarily all of us. Um, I would say the dominant culture, I would say, you know, the news media, uh, those of us who are, who are in that paradigm of, you know, working to get by and living to work and, you know, we, we get, well, in Canada anyways, we get vacation time and that's our recreation time. And we're trying to fit in our own interests and family is something that we do, but work is also something like, our, I feel like our, our spells are being broken. Our myths are being broken. The things that we've been blindlessly running on for most of my lifetime anyways. I'm, and I assume long before that too, have been challenged and stopped, stopped dead in their tracks. Right. And it's causing a, a lot of suffering for a lot of people, but you know, it's never one thing or the other. There's, there's joy and sorrow too. Those two things and more than those two things. I find it even in my language right now, you know, I, I'm constantly falling into the binaries, the opposites, the, these two things, the joy and the sorrow, when in reality, it's so much more nuanced than that. There's, there's 10 different words running alongside each other at once you know there's all these things reality there's all these realities running together at once and i think me anyways personally i feel just much more um open to that i think the dominant discussions kind of break down 
around me. Right. Right. I mean, I, you know, for me, the last, you know, since the pandemic started has been an experience of more people, um, uh, having experiences where they're looking at things more like, like I have, you know, because I've yeah. always been on the outside. I mean, yeah. I'm obviously still on the inside of settler colonialism because here I am, but you know, yeah. like, but, but, uh, have been an outcast, you know, for much of my yeah. life, you know? And so, and I've never been a fan of normal, and right. I've never had an interest in normal continuing. And yeah. that's from before I was a politically aware person already. Yeah. I was just like, oh, this just doesn't work. Then I became politically aware and was like, oh, and look, there's empire and all this stuff that's going on that's right. propping up normal. And, you know, so so uh, a break with normal, I was like, oh, thank God it's finally here that there's some big yeah. break that people are feeling. And, you know, yes, people are suffering because of it, but people were suffering because of normal too. Yeah. And when we say normal, um, I think what I'm hearing is something that I often call, you know, we're, uh, it's a, it's a buy-in to a kind of brainwashing right. that is generational in, in span, you know, it's a buy-in into, this is how things are and this is the way things have always been and this is how it should be everywhere and that that has that has been challenged i think you know people's uh, automated mode has been challenged in a big way and suddenly there's a little bit more allowance i guess for the possibility of other paradigms running alongside the dominant one you know and the word dominant too the idea of domination has really factored into my awareness lately as as somebody who comes from settlers primarily as well um about just what exactly is is failing here what is being challenged here what are we being given the opportunity to look at here and for me a lot of it comes down to the domination of one voice that's suddenly being challenged as the one voice Ah, the one voice, mm -hmm. like the one cultural voice or if you can even call it culture, okay. I'm not sure it's a culture because okay. to me, a monoculture, a monoculture where everything looks the same, a monoculture where you're either in or you're out is not a living thing. Right. And to me, a culture is a living thing. When I think about culture, I think about kombucha. I think about sauerkraut. I think about, you know, sourdough bread. I think about east they're all doing something they're they're creating and so a monoculture to me is a death cult it is a killer thing and when i think about you know crops in the field when i think about the canola crops around me in the field you just see these seas of yellow flowers that you know are killing the bees and they're killing all the other biodiversity around them and i think what i'm seeing now is is a challenge to that kind of domination where there's only one voice and only one thing that you can see only one thing that's being presented. Yeah. Because the, the monoculture, you know, eventually kills itself. It kills itself. Exactly. Through its dominance, it kills itself because there's no diversity there because it's not actually a culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that definitely happens in the in the agricultural world, where our current yeah. systems of, of dominant agriculture are literally um, destroying the earth, you know, where they're trying mm -hmm. to grow, you know. And so could that same thing be said for the Western world? 
right. something I've been thinking about a lot lately when we talk about um, what exactly is failing here. Ah, okay. Right. So when we say, when we say that, that there's been this break with the normal, then, then what, yeah, then, then you're honing in on what exactly that means, what that's actually what about. Exactly that means. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's the thing. There has been people all throughout the history on these lands that have not bought into that normal, that have violently refused that normal and that have, you know, stoically refused that normal, um, I come from some of those people. I'm just two generations into that normal, really. And and I think that that's one of the reasons why it's not made a lot of sense to me. There's something about my DNA memory that is saying, this is madness. This is absolute madness. But that doesn't mean I don't get caught up in it. You know, I, I live in it, too. I work in the healthcare system. I've gone to university. I speak the English language. I don't expose myself to a lot of media and I, I make a point of spending a lot of time outside in nature because that to me is, that's more trustworthy than anything you could show me on the news. You know, that's more trustworthy than any well-indoctrinated human voice in this part of the world that I live in. But what I've been noticing is, I mean, when I think back to the start of the pandemic, you know, there's no toilet paper on the shelves. <laughs> Something that people always expected to be there and when I guess you have your always expected to challenged, that's the beginning of the breaking of a paradigm for a lot of people. That's that's a little crack, you know, in in the wall of something for a lot of people. And for the majority of people who have just kind of been humming along, expecting to be taken care of by the government, not even the earth anymore. They're expecting to be taken care of by an anonymous state by anonymous face they've lost trust long 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 ago in their lineages that the earth will provide for them they walked away from that for many reasons not necessarily just willingly but yeah i'm seeing a break in that trust i guess in systems that have sustained certain people for a very long time yeah, I think that I think that a lot of people are feeling exactly what you're talking about. And I think that there's different levels of um, how conscious people are of that. Do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. you know, so some Absolutely. people are just having a feeling and they're just really uncomfortable and maybe they're feeling angry or sad about things, but they're not really pinpointing it so much. And I think that one thing I've been thinking as I look around at the different reactions people have been having is I'm like, you know, it feels like the the sort of denial reaction that some people have, it seems like it's similar to like when you get dumped or something like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, working in medicine, um, I work with babies that die. I work with death and I don't work with it every day, but it does come up. And that has been my life for the last 15 years. I have been with people who are dying and people who have died older and younger. And to me, to me, it's the stages of grief, you know, to me, it's, it's part of the process and that it's almost like the devil, you know, it's almost like that can't really be happening because this is what I know and I don't know what comes next. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think it's very human nature to want to cling to things, even if they're not good for us anymore, because at least we know what they are. You know, we get, we get comfortably uncomfortable. <laughs> we get hooked on our own, um, nervous system responses really we get hooked on the familiar 
because at least I know how I react to that. I don't know how I react to something completely unfamiliar. And I think that that's very true for people who have never really been jostled or challenged in their life. And that to me runs down class lines that of course run into race and gender and all those considerations too is that if you're living a very, very comfortable life where you haven't had to worry a lot about where your resources are going to come from because you've just had access to resources your entire life, then, yep, this is probably pretty jostling for you. Whereas for other people who have had to fight and who have had to struggle, you know, there's a, I'm sure there's people out there saying, yeah, yeah, this is nothing new. Like, this is just more struggle. Right. So, like... It's kind of, you know, there's been a degree to which um, how much someone has benefited from the system, you know, and yeah, I mean, and we've, we've always, we've always seen that in reaction to the system anyway, and now it's just being brought out, you know, in all these new ways. And yeah, yeah, the five stages of grief. I'm glad you you mentioned that because denial is the first one, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Denial is the first one. And I... I can't actually think of all of them off the top of my head, which is terrible because I have a psychology degree. <laughs> but um, yeah, denial is a big one. You know, this can't actually be happening. And and to me, that's very much rooted in uh, spirit practice or lack of spirit practice, which is different than religion to me in a big mm-hmm. way, you know, contending mm-hmm. with our own mortality and truly being in ceremony as we walk and um and not necessarily just going to church every Sunday. I don't know that that necessarily teaches people how to contend with their temporary nature here on earth. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, and that's, that's something I know is, is a big deal where you are. You know, fundamental religion is a big deal where you are. Oh, yeah. More so than where I am. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to set up a lot of differences between Canadians and Americans, as I'm not sure there are as many as we would like to believe there are, but... I would say that the pervasiveness of fundamental Christianity is a big one. It's just not something that um, is around the, you know, the politics of where I am or even the daily conversation of where I am or how people approach each other where I am. I'm sure in some circles, but generally speaking, I, I'm fairly confident in saying that that's not really a factor. So, yeah, but I would say, you know, I definitely notice um in paradigms breaking for people in in narratives breaking for people in certainties i think that's another big one too is a lot of people were very certain about how their lives were going and their own control over their lives and i think there's a lot of people realizing through a events like a pandemic and an economic meltdown that you're one factor in your best laid plans. You're not in control, you know, and and suddenly having to contend with that too is jarring. I think for a lot of people who have been told that they are the masters of their own universe, which is some very heavy human-centric thinking and some very heavy individualistic thinking. It was always a false certainty in in reality, of course. It's a delusion. It's an absolute delusion, but one that I know... You know, growing up in the 80s, we were fed the lines of you're special and you can do whatever you want. And and especially, I think, with uh, feminism on the rise during that time, as a female, I was told, you know, I have the power. I can do whatever I want. I can be whatever I want. And 
and that's how I should approach the world. And, you know, there's no humility there. There's no, there's no actual relationship there to anything. It's just my will all the time. And it's me pushing all the time. And that broke for me, actually, about um, a decade ago now with, you know, divorces and, and breaking up of relationships and stuff like that, where I had to realize I am one factor in my world. There are 50,000 other factors that play here. And if I'm not in relationship with any of those things, if I'm constantly asserting my will and pushing my dominance on things, I'm not in relationship at all. And that will always falter, no matter what. That is a delusion that is aggression, that is violence towards everything else around me. Right. And that would be not, you know, human nature, but really the nature of civilization, I would say. Is it civilization, though? <laughs> how are we defining civilization? You know, and, and again, I would say that that's not necessarily how it is everywhere, but that is how it is in this part of the world. That is how we've been taught our Western dominance, for sure. And, you know, when I look at America in particular, that is the American way. You want something, you go out and get it through war. You go out and get it through aggression. That is celebrated. That kind of um, assertion is celebrated. And to me, it's, you know, it's, it's emblematic of people who aren't really where they are. They're trying to call a place home without actually being at home. There's no relationship to the land. There's no relationship to the water. There's no relationship to the ecosystem. So it's just constantly people on the take without actually ever giving back because they want something, they go get it because they've been told they deserve it. Right. And and that's definitely been that's definitely how it's been in the United States since mm -hmm. the since the very beginning. And, you know, the colonies sought to be have independence from Britain. Um, two of the big motivations uh, were that they, the British were increasingly turning against slavery and right. the colonies wanted to keep slavery. And two, the British were like, you may not go west of the, of the Appalachian Mountains. That's for the Indians, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, so, and then you did. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You and, did you know, anyway. Yeah. When George Washington, you know, was, yeah. was a real estate man, you know? Yeah. That's how he became the richest man in the colonies was by stealing land from Indians and then selling it, you know, to settlers. You know, so Trump is not the first real estate guy to have <laughs> to be in the <laughs> to, to be president. You know, so it's from that beginning that there has been this, oh, we just get to take what we what we want. And, and it's all been, you know, an imposition. And that was always going to have. Um, that was never going to last forever. Mm -mm. That was always going to have an expiration date, like mm -hmm. inevitably. And now it seems as though it's like, oh, here it is. We're coming up on it. Now is the part where it's not going to be easy to uphold these illusions anymore. And now mm -hmm. we're not just going to be able to take this stuff as easily as we want to anymore. And mm -hmm. lots of stuff is running out, you know. And there's other powers in the world you know, too, politically, you know, who, who mm -hmm. are on the rise, who don't have the same personality as the United States, but who are not going to give the United States the same room or position that it's had this whole time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And as somebody who comes from the little sister of the United States without the military might and all that, you know, it's, it's, 
easy for Canadians to sit back and shape our national identity on not being you guys, when in reality we benefit just as much from your aggression and from your assertion in the world. Um, but there is something about our national psyche that goes, oh my gosh, those Americans, like, what are they doing? <laughs> and, you know, to take a bit of a holier-than-thou attitude, I fully admit a lot of Canadians do that. Um, but I find what you said about real estate really interesting, just in the sense that the language of that in itself is setting up a certain relationship to the land that you're inhabiting. You know, it's it's all for acquisition. It's all for the taking. And talking about George Washington being in in that business, you know, when when America was just starting to to find itself, I guess. Um, I see that now as traveling down the lines, as being a generational thing, that is an inheritance. And so I have to wonder, you know, being that many generations deep in that kind of thinking, what have we really inherited as far as how we are in relationship to the places that we call home? And so when I think about the language of real estate towards land, when I think about the language of private property towards land, as though a piece of earth, earth is something that you can own, um, that takes out all the tending and that takes out the responsibility to me. And, and what I hear there is the beginning of the assertion of rights without the assertion of, or without the acknowledgement of responsibility, without being in relationship into a place that's reciprocal. And I think that that's what we're seeing the consequences of now is that we've taken everything for ourselves, you know, and when I say we, I, I am talking about settler people. Um, we've taken everything for ourselves. We've been, we have been out of line with the treaty promise, the promises that we made, and we've been out of relationship with these places that we're in, and we're seeing the consequences of that now with things running out, and we're treating everything as a resource. You know, we talk about resources, we talk about real estate, we talk about um, living things as though they are things as though they are things to consume and that's all and I, I think that that has a huge downfall for the world yeah. yeah and I think that some of what you're talking about is is I mean some of it there's like the settler colonial overlay and mm -hmm. you know which which you know the Canadians and the, and the US Americans both have a lot of you know and then <laughs> there's what I, I earlier referred to as civilization, but which I could also refer to as domestication, you know? Yes, that's such a better word for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, yeah. which you know, includes a lot of what you're talking about there because there was this process of domesticating animals, domesticating plants, and we were domesticating ourselves at the at the same time as all that was happening. And so... So, you know, the U.S. is is kind of running up on its like, OK, the, the, the bill is coming due. But I think as well that the, the process, the, the whole project of domestication, you know, and, and agriculture in that sense, you know, is also reaching mm -hmm. its due at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think it all ties together for sure. You know, when I think about the relationship that I have with my dog, even I feed her. I provide her needs. She doesn't have to go out and get her own food anymore. She doesn't have to work. You know, her her work is providing me companionship. That's her job. And when I think about uh, the relationships that we have to government systems, to social systems, to that kind of stuff, we're being provided for. And what is our job? Our job is to produce. And so you you get these systems that, you know, they feel they feel like like they're unbreakable 
but I think what we're seeing now is some, some acknowledgement, you know, that there is some faltering in the way that we thought things would always be. Even though we've talked for ages about knowing that oil would run out and knowing that there's problems, knowing that climate change is here, knowing that um, resources are dwindling, we've talked about that for so long. I feel like, especially in academic circles, we can talk ourselves, we can rationalize and talk ourselves blue about it, but what do we ever actually do about it? And to me, that goes back to relationship as well, is we can rationalize our relationship to a place but that's not actually seeing the place or being in a reciprocal relationship with a place. Yeah, reciprocity is a word that I really like. And um, mm-hmm. a couple of my friends who are into wild tending uh, here yes. in the United States, they use the word reciprocity all the time. And mm-hmm. that's like the difference between the wild tending approach to um, providing food for oneself on land and the agricultural approach, which is not reciprocity. And then just to make it clear, what I mean both to you and to people listening is that um, uh, for those of us who are gardening, that's, I I think that's different than agriculture as well. That would, Mm -hmm. that's what you could call horticultural horticulture, Mm -hmm. you know, but one can practice that with too much of an agricultural mind. Yes, very much so. And again, that's that relationship bit, you know. Um, I think also what we're touching on here is animism versus inanimism. And to me, inanimism is a prejudice. To me, um, to see the world as, to see plants, to see animals, you know, to not see a living thing there is a prejudice within us. And so I know when I'm gardening, before I take from a plant, I give an offering of myself, um, not even just when I'm gardening, but if if I'm wild harvesting as well, I give something of myself or I give back in some way. I have a discussion with that spirit. I acknowledge it as a living thing that is providing something for me. And so I'm providing something with it to it as well. And yeah, I see, you know, just a consumer culture so out of relationship with anything that is living. It's a a consumer culture is it's a dead thing to me you're constantly approaching the world as though nothing is alive but you and you are the only one with needs to be met and you are the only one you know who needs to be nourished it's just it's constantly feeding and that's all mindlessly eating inanimism i've never thought of that word before i really appreciate that Mm -hmm. that's what i feel like i see around me all the time Well, and I think that that's part of what I mean about you've got 400 million people on this continent who have never really landed on this continent in that when when the settlers first showed up, they tried to erect Europe in a place that isn't Europe. They never actually saw this place. They brought their own biases. They brought their own language. They brought their own religion. And they didn't actually learn this place. They didn't learn the language of this place. They didn't learn the sounds of this place. And they didn't actually feel the living heartbeat of this place they just looked at another place as real estate at a place that as a place that could provide you know and and when we talk in terms of real estate and providing and deserving and resources and all that stuff it sets up transactional relationships it sets up financial relationships and those to me are not intimate relationships which is something that we are lacking so much on the personal, but I think also on the collective level as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's like it's a disease that we're suffering from. I agree. It's like a constant brainwashing. It's it is like dis-ease. You know, it is like, yeah, it is. It's generational. It's been passed down. And so I look at people here today who are contending with these things that are much older and greater with them. And I understand how people have woken up to this life and never had their stories challenged. You know, they've been told that this is how it's always been because that is how their ancestors were always in relationship to this place or out of relationship to this place. And so you've got people walking around awake, but they're not actually seeing what's in front of them. They're not actually engaging with what's in front of them. And to have their needs suddenly not met or their needs suddenly challenged in such a big way as an economic downturn and a pandemic and, you know, a a very sick political system um, that I think is, is showing its true colors very well during this election cycle for you guys to have all those things challenged at one time is probably completely discombobulating because those people too are now having that, those delusions ripped away very suddenly but they are also they don't have the tools necessarily to engage with what's in front of them because they don't have elders they don't have culture they don't know the language of this place so i i imagine that being a very lost and confounding place especially if they're having resources taken away at once you know to be suddenly left quite naked as a human yeah yeah totally i i feel like i'm seeing that reaction come out in so many different ways. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm seeing it come out, you know, across, you know, what they call the political spectrum as well, mm-hmm. you know, and the yeah. denial, like being such a big part of it of like, what are the ways I can think of to think about this situation or talk about the situation so that I don't yeah. have to believe that it's really happening. Well, and when you talk about what are the ways that I can think of and to talk about, you're talking about, already erected paradigms within a person you're talking about already elected erected lenses within a person that they're still trying to apply to a world that doesn't exist anymore and that has got to be devastating on a spiritual level for a lot of people especially if they're out of touch with their spiritual life too you know i i don't necessarily equate religion with a spiritual life and so yeah i I think about these things that have been in play a lot longer than I've been alive. And I look at the inheritance that we've been given and the level of disillusionment that a large swath of people must be feeling right now and must be experiencing right now. It it feels like it's all coming to a head. And then I also look at the success of, I I can't even blame it on your government or anything because again, it's much, it's much larger than that. It's, it's much longer running than this current administration that you have, but they're definitely profiting off of um, very distinct binaries that have been set up in your country. You know, I, I have a lot of American friends that I talk to often. I talk to daily, quite a few of my friends are American and to hear what, it's like where they are, you know, they'll often start a a sentence with, Oh, my neighbor, so-and-so he's a conservative. And where I come from, I, I don't really look at my neighbor and go, Oh, politically they must be this, but to have such set teams, I guess, and to have 
um, such set rhetorics on both sides and to only have two sides as well. You know, you, I see a population that's perfectly divided along every major line I can think of. And then I also see a population that is further dividing into microgroups, into little smaller communities of people who agree with them and get them. When in reality, I see people who probably have a lot more in common than not. And I'm, I guess I don't hold a lot of hope for a lot of things. Hope is not really something that I subscribe to just because hope generally has an outcome tied to it. But in this case, I am going to say, I hope that people can come to realize that there's more commonality among them than not. And that really, I think a lot of what we're seeing breaks down to class. I think it breaks down to the fact that you've got 10% of people, regardless of color and gender and regardless of politics and religion, you've got a very small subset of people who are in control of the resources and in control of the social um, forum, I guess, the dominant social language that's being put out there. And you've got 90% of people looking at each other going, my neighbor's my problem, my neighbor's my problem, my neighbor's my problem, because they're conservative or they're liberal or they're this. And they're never looking up and saying, who's, why is this happening? You know, how did this come to be? I see a lot of... Um, a lot of certainty and not a lot of questions, I guess. Yeah. There's a lot of posing of, of, of being certain that's for sure. And yeah. you know, the lack of class consciousness in the United States, um, you know, you certainly wouldn't be the first to, to comment on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I guess, I guess that that is one place that Canada and the U S are different, not in the sense that, I mean, Canada absolutely has its, you know, its tiers of society, its classist issues for sure. Um, but we also have social systems and we also have social supports. And very much what we're contending with up here now is governments now being elected at the provincial level so far, not at the national level, um, that are actively working to tear down those social supports to make our our way of life a little bit more American and privatized. But as somebody who has grown up in a place with social supports where I don't have to think about healthcare and I, I don't have to think about what happens if I'm not working and stuff like that. I, I have vacation time. You know, if I was to have a baby, I don't have to worry about maternity leave or anything like that. Um, that has been something that I have noticed <laughs> to the south of me where those supports aren't there and suddenly it's every man for himself. And when you pit every man for himself, everyone else is an issue. You know, everyone else is taking something from you when it really are they, is your neighbor really taking something from you? Right. Yeah. No, it's the, it's the divide and conquer uh, strategy yeah. that that 10% is using consciously or not, you know, on, on, on everyone else. And, and I think some of them yeah. are fully conscious that that's what they're doing. And I think other ones are just like, Oh, here's the game that I play, you know, I, I would say your, your man in the office right now is very conscious of it. Yeah, oh, definitely. It. Mm -hmm. I won't, I won't say his name. I cannot say his name. Thank it, you. I just can't do it, but I can talk about him. And when I'm talking about him, I'm not necessarily even just talking about him as a man. I'm talking about him as a construct as well. That has been in play for a long time, but I would say that he is absolutely aware of that. I don't think I don't think he's uh, stupid. 
I don't think he's intelligent, but I don't think he's stupid. And I think he knows exactly what it, what he is doing, even if he is extremely ineloquent in his way of doing it. But perhaps that's the gift. You know, perhaps the gift is that through his ineloquence, it is just laid so bare that you can't say, you know, there's no hiding it anymore. Yeah, it, it's it's um it's unfortunate that people haven't seen how how typical he really honestly is. I mean, you know, I grew yeah. up in, in a red state and, you know, that person, you know, could have been my uncle or my next door neighbor or any other things like like when he rose to power. I, I didn't listen to any of the speeches during the election process mm-hmm. in 2016. So when he when he was declared the winner and gave his speech, I was like, OK, let me see what this person sounds like when he's talking. And I'm like, oh, I totally <laughs> understand why people in Nebraska love this guy. Like, I yeah. get it. I totally get it. You know, like, he just has this demeanor and this like, this like, oh, here's the common sense that I'm speaking, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, Mm -hmm. like, he has what you would call a grandfatherly demeanor in Nebraska, you know, like, right, he does. And so there's, there's a a level of denialism about, uh, about him somehow not being typical. Well, and I guess, I guess, could it be as well that, you know, that's, that's more of that delusion that we were talking about and people trying to uphold the delusion and hold on to it for dear life because they are aware that paradigms are changing. They are aware that, you know, different groups of people are suddenly having more of a prominent voice and they are aware that something, something is changing in the world, but they can't necessarily put their finger on it. And so, you know, we, there's a lot of talk right now about white supremacy as there should be, but I have to wonder if that farmer in Nebraska who, thinks that this guy sounds like his grandfather and who is is partial to an authoritarian voice for whatever reason, be that being raised in a part of the world that um, very much sets up the, the binaries of victim perpetrator and sets up a punishment as the only way of resolving conflict um, kind of dynamics. But I have to wonder if that farmer is actively sitting there, you know, buying into to white supremacy the way that that other people are looking at it and going that this is what that is. Like, I don't know that it's necessarily a conscious thing, which is why I think you get a lot of supporters of that man, not recognizing what they're actually upholding. They're not recognizing the dominance that they're upholding because they don't think it applies to them because they don't see it. It's like, you know, where I am on a really good clear night in the summer, you can see the Milky way. You can see the entire streak of it. And I've had so many people say to me, look, you can see the whole Milky Way. And I step back and go, no, you can't because you're in it. You're also a part of it. And so I have to wonder if when you're in it, you can't see outside of it and you're upholding it without understanding that the language that that you use and the way that you're proceeding in the world is upholding something for you that's that's hurting you and hurting everybody else as well. Yeah. I feel like this is very, very common, you know? Yeah. And that yeah. I think that most people who I've met um, in my life in the United States have, have been doing that to one degree or another. And much of my own work uh, on myself and with myself has been about uh, 
about fighting against that or growing beyond it or however it is that you want to to put it, you know? Yeah. And it, it seems like uh, awareness is really the key to that. And many people just never have had uh, a moment of awareness of these things. And so a crisis comes along and can help provide a moment of awareness, uh, uh, you know, whether conscious or not. Mm-hmm. Well, and I have to wonder why they haven't had a moment of awareness for that. You know, I think there's many, many factors to consider there in that the the dominant paradigm, the the accepted way of life for many people was working out quite well for them. And so now to have that challenge feels like they're having something taken away when, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot lately about the invitation in this as well. I see an invitation to do differently. I see an invitation to realign our relationships. I see an invitation to step out of some of the the firmly held stories. And I understand the grief there, but I also understand um, a need for humility that I don't think is familiar to a lot of people of the Western mind. We're not taught to be humble. Oh, not at all. Yeah. 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 And so I have to wonder if that's another reason a lot of people have never had a moment of reckoning because they haven't allowed themselves to surrender to one. They haven't allowed themselves to be humbled. They haven't allowed themselves to be not the dominant voice in a relationship. Right. You know, I, I have to wonder, too, um, well, because there's always the question of how much of this is conscious and how much of it is intentional and not. And yeah. I feel like I have to bring in the topic of the corporate media and, mm-hmm. you know, both the news media and the entertainment media and the immense power that they have over shaping people's views of the world. I have to wonder about the media, too. Um, and I have to wonder about trauma mm. and constantly exposing ourselves to terrible things, you know, and, and getting it just embroiled in these in these stories that are farther away from us. I have to wonder what that does to our bodies and what that does to our nervous systems and what that does to our trauma responses. And then I have to wonder what happens when you take people who come from people who were heavily traumatized before they landed here. I mean, people don't leave home because it's working out well for them. You know, when I think about what happened to Europe before people left Europe, there's centuries of trauma and war and degradation and killing of the indigenous before people reached these shores and before the colonized became the colonizers. And so when I think about the cultural body that we've inherited, I think about a, a traumatized body. And if we're constantly feeding it trauma, if we're constantly feeding it the highs and the lows, if we're constantly feeding it little nervous system hits that are meant to garner a response from us, how are we ever supposed to start working working through that? How are we ever supposed to start you know, healing those places within us? as individuals and as a culture. Right. What you said just now really reminded me of something that Lewis Mumford used to talk about. Do you know Lewis Mumford? I don't, actually. 
Oh, he well, he was a 20th century writer, and mm-hmm. he's been dead for some time. I don't think he made it into the 21st century. You might look him up, Lewis. Uh, I think it's just L-E-W-I-S, Mumford. And, I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah, and some of his books are about like architecture and stuff. But then he wrote a series about he kind of invented urban studies like as mm-hmm. an academic thing you know he also mm-hmm. studied technology a lot and he was studying technology and its effects on culture and media and, and its effects on culture way before anyone else was and he talked about how uh how entertainment media delivers uh it, it has these these shock absorbers and, yes. that, and that each shock absorber is preparing the person for the next shock, which is going to be bigger, you know? Right. And he talked yeah. about how this would be desensitizing to the public, right? And yeah. when he wrote about this, he was he wrote about this in a book called Technics, which was his book for his word for technology, because they didn't have the word technology yet. He said Technics, Technics and Civilization. And he wrote mm-hmm. this book in 1930, and he was talking about radio and movies, Mm -hmm. and large sporting events. Mm -hmm. That is where he was already looking at the mass media entertainment and how it was affecting people and desensitizing people even before television came along, you know? Right. And so and it's before just, the internet. <laughs> I know. Which was like yeah. which is like taking everything that was bad about television and put it on like hypersteroids. And so so this has been going on for a while. This has been going on for over a hundred years. What you're talking about, or what I, I think you're talking about here, of how the media itself uh, creates um, experiences of trauma for us. Yeah, well, and I would say it's been going on much longer than that, too. I mean, you look back to gladiator games in Rome, you know, it's the, it's the same kind of idea. It's the same kind of nervous system response. And I think the media, I know the media through advertising and stuff, they know how to play on our neurotransmitters, you know, they know how to get certain physical responses out of us. And so that's something, um, well, I'll share something with you right now. I was diagnosed with uh, complex PTSD about six years ago, and it's a diagnosis that, you know, it made sense to me at the time, but I also take some issues with Western psychology and that I don't think it actually considers um, the whole person in a cultural context and in a spiritual context as well. So I said, okay, yeah, I recognize that that is something that might be going on with me. But when I started to look at it as a nervous system um, injury, that made more sense to me because I, I, the way that I felt in my body had changed. And a big part of my, I even hate to say healing because for me, healing is not a destination. It's nothing that I'm ever going to be. It's constant relearning. Um, a big, a big part of how I knew that I was learning to work differently with that injury though, was when I started to relearn the responses in my body. And so with the media, I haven't watched TV. I hardly expose myself to any movies, Um, since I was about 23 years old. So for about 15 years now, I haven't been exposed to media. My media is my garden. My media is outside my door. And with that being said, though, I obviously am on Facebook and I am very aware that that is just as bad as the 24-7 news channels as far as uh, inundating us with with information, if you can even call it information half the time. But something that I've noticed about myself is that now when I expose myself to a news channel that might be on in the break room at work, or when I watch a movie, um, 
my bodily response to it is hyperactive. The last time that I went to a movie, it was a 3D movie. My father wanted to go for Father's Day, so I took him to Tarzan, and that was a couple of years ago. 3D and everything in a big theater with big noise and you know big pictures and big colors and, and lots of sights and sounds. And I was hyper aroused for three days afterwards. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't function. I was edgy. And the only other time I'm like that is when I'm in the back country by myself, when all of my senses are suddenly on board, you know, for, for days at a time. And I come back to the city and my reactions are absolutely inappropriate <laughs> for a city environment because I still have all five of my senses firing at once and I'm very alert all the time. And so what I, when I think about, you know, constant exposure to media, which I, I don't watch Fox News. I don't watch any of the 24-7 news, but I know that that's out there and I know that people do watch that constantly. Um, I do I do imagine that eventually your body's responses to constant exposure to high stimuli is to, to pull back, is to shut down to some extent. And I think that is the desensitization. But then when I'm thinking about the stories that are constantly doled out on the media, especially 24-7 media, you hear the same thing over and over and over again. I imagine because you're you're dulled down and your thinking is foggy at this point. I know when I was in acute trauma, um, my thinking, I was just in a fog all the time and my memory was terrible. And so when I think about people exposing themselves to that, living in an age where I imagine your most of your population is highly traumatized right now, from the last four years, if not longer, depending on where they fall on those class lines. Um, I think about people not being able to think, not being able to plan their next move, not being able to discern. And then you combine that with, I'm going to be blunt, but a a country that seems to pride itself on anti-intellectualism, where critical thinking is demeaned often. Um, I see a combo that is really hard to get out of, especially when you throw in puritanical religious considerations too. If people are indoctrinated in a way where they're taught thinking for themselves is going to get them punished, is going to get them banished, then how are they ever supposed to break any of those spells? How are they supposed to see what's in front of them? in a state of shock after the war. We interrupt our program for a brief message. If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting Colibri on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Colibri. That's K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. And now, back to our regularly scheduled... Right. And then here we are with some interruptions to what people yeah. are expecting. And I, I feel like I have seen some people, uh, you know, rising to the opportunity, I guess you could say, or, 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 or taking on and being like, oh, and like making some realizations, you know, and then of course, other people just being really, be, being really frightened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, those people who have, for whatever reason, not been included uh, in in the normal, as we keep calling it, who have not been included in kind of the day-to-day functioning of 
the people with with the access to resources, the people with unquestionable privilege, I imagine that those are the people who are are kind of sitting back and going, well, yeah, like I've I've been telling you this for a while. I've been seeing this for a while because this system hasn't included me. But the people that it's been entirely inclusive of, they still only have their lens of seeing the world. They've been indoctrinated in a certain way. And so they're still trying to, to apply that, you know, they're still trying to use that. And that has to be utterly confounding for them to be applying a way of life, to be applying a viewpoint that isn't being confirmed constantly anymore. Right. And, and I feel like it was so much of it was just an illusion, you know, to, to begin with. And yeah. yeah, so now, yeah, now, now, now we have this. I, I feel like you could also talk about uh, the U.S. and Western civilization in general, maybe in terms of addiction as well. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. No, totally. Yeah, it's just constantly, yeah, fueling something that is kind of out of mind and out of body and out of relationship to where you are. And I think part of what I've, been noticing up here anyways um in some places and some things that i've seen mostly on social media because i don't watch the news but just the various reactions that people are are displaying um from the trauma of having their illusions ripped down you know i remember the the grown men walking into the legislature in michigan with guns and being shocked by that and being shocked first off that that was legal. And then also thinking about had other groups of people done that it wouldn't have been tolerated, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> like, you know, that is, that is the epitome of, I think what we're talking about, about, you know, privilege and um, social dominance being challenged and the reactions to that. And some people's reactions are violence and some people's reactions I mean, a reaction to me is never a uh, embodied thing. To, it, to me, a reaction is a emotionally charged, emotionally out-of-body thing, and it's not a response. And so I think, I don't know, I'm concerned. Leading up to your guys' election, I'm concerned of a uh, highly traumatized reactive society. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, I mean... It's quite something to be to be witnessing from here, obviously. And the those of us who have been paying attention to the massive voter fraud that's been taking place over the last 20 years and especially over the last four are like, how can we even be talking about this as if it's a fair and reasonable contest when it isn't? You know, I mean, and I I think a lot of people, too, are just having a hard time. Uh, contending with the idea that that is even happening in America. And that's where the exceptionalism comes in for me, you know, something that, that not living in America, and I think a lot of the world is exposed to is the American exceptionalism. I mean, it's just not part of my dialogue as somebody who is, is a member of the Canadian state to walk around saying Canada is the best, Canada is the best country in the world. That's just not something I was ever taught you know, but traveling overseas, um, I've done a fair bit of traveling and most of it has been very rustic and very immersed, as immersed as I could be in places that didn't ask for me. But seeing corruption so clearly in other places that I've been, like uh, Zimbabwe, for example, and 
then coming back home and traveling in a few places in America too. And as an outsider, seeing the similarities, but again, contending with people who, because of the illusions of exceptionalism, haven't necessarily seen that and don't necessarily think that that can happen where they are. When people in the United States have so little um, awareness of what's going on outside of the United States, you know, period. And I can see that with the response to COVID. I can see that with the response to coronavirus where, you know, there's these mask debates going on and these debates about rights and freedoms and everything else as though it's only happening to the USA. And the response I see from the rest of the world to that is we've essentially built a wall around you guys. We've built your wall for you and that passports, a U.S. passport is not going to get you very far these days. Right. I know that that um, one thing that some um, of my U.S. American listeners are going to want to to know from mm-hmm. a Canadian is um, how easy is it to get up there these days? Do we have to marry someone <laughs> or what? <laughs> yeah, you, you pretty much have to marry someone. And even then, it could be a year long wait. <laughs> so mm-hmm. our our borders are firmly closed to U.S. citizens. And um, I have some dear friends in the States that I'm missing so much. I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be in a previous life uh, in Ontario this week, visiting with quite a few of them, and that's not happening. And so I keep looking at the news, and um, that is the one thing I will Google every month around August. Well, this year, this month it was August fifteenth, but I Google that about the fifteenth of every month, and I'm expecting another month long of border closure, and I'm expecting another month of waiting to see some dear souls that I care about so much, but. No, as far as our government is concerned, um, nobody's getting up here. And I've heard stories recently of people saying that they were traveling through to Alaska and they've closed that loophole now, as far as I know, because they were traveling mostly through my province of Alberta. And there was people being found in the mountains with U.S. license plates and that kind of stuff. And the, uh, the fines for doing something like that right now and even stopping in the mountains overnight without quarantining and all of that is up to $750,000. So wow, it's serious business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And jail time too, for people who aren't respecting the quarantine act up here. So as far as I know, they've loosened restrictions as far as immediate family members. Um, and that does include spouses. So you would have to get married to a Canadian, (laughs) but, um, but even then, I have friends who have married Americans before all this happened, and they had to spend a year between two countries. Right. And you have, you have um, uh, everyone can get married up there, right? It's not just a man-woman thing? Uh, oh, yeah. No, that's not a thing. Yeah. No, marriage is marriage. Love is love. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that, 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 that counts, too, for getting in. Yeah, absolutely. Um and we also acknowledge common law relationships and conjugal relationships, but those have to be proven. And the government does look into, you know, is your relationship a real relationship? So it can't just be two friends who decide one of them wants to come here and, hey, let's call ourselves a conjugal relationship. It doesn't quite work that way. Right, right. Yeah. They've, got, they've got to go through with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you actually have to love the Canadian that you're marrying to that factors in. <laughs> Right. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be a real thing. (laughs) 
But um, but even with that, like they've eased the restrictions a little bit as far as immediate family members. And there's a lot of cross-border couples. It seems our, our countries are really fond of each other um, that can't reunite because in the government's eyes, they're just dating. Even if they share residences and own property and stuff, it gets complicated. And then throw in um, immigration wait times and stuff. It's not like people are coming up here tomorrow. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if, if uh, the person currently in the White House stays in the White House, there'll, there, there'll be a lot of people tempted to go up there, as there are yeah. every time a Republican yeah. gets elected. So, Yeah, and it, it's not as easy as, you know, I want to come to Canada, therefore I'm going to go to Canada. That, to me, is another uh, exceptionalism and entitlement thing in that you want your borders restricted or respected story. Ours also have to be respected. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I also I also think there's something to be said for uh, sticking with it in a place that has nourished you, you know, through the hard times. How are you going to nourish that place back? And I understand for people who are in real danger, I worry a lot for my activist friends. I understand people who want to get out because their lives might actually be in danger. I have absolute sympathy for those people. But for people who are uncomfortable because their way of life is suddenly not working out for them, I I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about running from a place. But I also can't say what I would do in that situation because I haven't been put in that situation. So, Right. I mean, I, I feel like I have personally enough enough knowledge of, of history and of other countries and of regimes and all that to know to be able to look at this one and Mm -hmm. be able to judge it, you know, and, you know, even put it on a scale of 10 or something. And if I was going to put it on a scale of one to 10, well, we're still, uh, we're still on the low end, you know, here, you know, like the, there's, there's some big factors that haven't come into play yet. Like the person in the white house does not actually have the military lined up behind him right now. For example, I mean, there's, there's some, there's some important ones that aren't in place yet, you know? Yeah, and it's difficult because, you know, as an outsider, it's easy for me to say that I'm not sure that either option is a good option. I'm not sure that either option is going to, there's going to be large swaths of people that are harmed by either option. And to me, that's almost where the roots is up. You know, you've got two options, neither one is good. You're not you're not voting because you think somebody's going to do a great job. And when it breaks down to having to vote for the lesser evil, then I think that that's where clear eyes on the system at play start to be used. Yeah. Personally, I haven't voted for a Democrat for president since 1992. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm a, I'm someone who's very hard to convince on the, yeah the lesser evil one, because I, I, I've heard that one, you know, um, yeah. so many times. And, and to some degree, I simply see it as being different grist for the mill. Right. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And not that it's much different up here. We may have more parties, but generally we have two dominant parties. And generally, they're all still political parties. You know, they're all representing some interests over others. And some people are going to benefit and some people are going to be harmed. So, yeah, it's uh, to me that is the um, just a, more questions to be asked about uh, democracy and how how we are relating to a place with applying democracy to it. 
Right, right. I mean, I guess that the the one thing that might be different this year is that, and this to bring it back, and this brings it back to the topic of fundamentalism that you mentioned before, is yeah. just that the the current vice president is uh, like a fundamentalist, like a dominionist, like yeah. one of these people who actually believes in an imminent rapture. One of these yes. people who could feel as though there's some benefit to uh, starting a war because maybe that will bring Jesus back. And there actually hasn't been someone with those beliefs in the, the in the Oval Office up until now. There hasn't been. And yeah. so uh, given that um, both both of the, the, the presidential candidates are are old and not in very good health and that there's, I would say, a high likelihood that neither of them would finish out this term. Yeah. In, in a way, what it gets to be then is looking at it being the vice presidential candidate versus the vice presidential candidate. And there, um, if someone there, someone might actually get me and be like, OK, yeah, OK, yeah. I'll, I'll vote for the for the former, you know, for, for the for the, 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 the prison queen from California, you know? Yeah, no, it's difficult. And again, as as somebody as an extreme outsider of any of that, you know, I'm I'm not bought into your political rhetoric. I'm also not a Christian. My parents never baptized me. And so lucky you. <laughs> right. I was I consider myself fortunate in that I, you know, as a child, I was given space. I was given space to explore. And I I've been an animist since I opened my eyes and I never had that taken away from me mm. by trying to put the sacred in a house only that I go to on Sundays. That's beautiful. The sacred, the sacred is all around me all the time, you know, and there has been times in my life where I've tried to fit in. I've tried to buy into the Western system, to the dominant system. And for various reasons, I don't fit. And I, that's been painful at the time. But I recognize that now as such a beautiful blessing in my life. And so in that sense, I've been aware of these dynamics in the USA in particular of, you know, religious wars and of fundamentalism tied in with politics. And as somebody who is outside of the 360 million people, the 4.5% of the human population that resides in your country and as somebody who is outside of Christian indoctrination, it pisses me off, quite frankly, because why does the rest of the world have to be subjected to that delusion, to that insanity when we don't buy in? You know, I'm sure there's other people that do. There's fundamentalists everywhere. But when it comes down to military might, when it comes down to extraction of of resources when it comes down to the killing of everything sacred and i just i have to step back and say why is a human somewhere else who hasn't bought into this why do i have to why does my life have to be subjected to this too you know and it's it's really frustrating it's really really frustrating as somebody who has no say and no control over it and no benefit from that either yeah yeah, because the military aspect of the United States has really never gotten less attention uh, mm -hmm. within the United States than it is now. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, that is a that is a different cultural thing to me. I mean, Canada has a military. Yes, I have had friends who are in the military, but it's not regarded in the same way. It doesn't seem like to me it's it's not part of our national dialogue because you guys take care of it for us, 
and I'm, you know, I'm not going to pretend like Canada doesn't benefit off of the military expeditions of the USA. We absolutely do in, you know, trade and commerce and economy and all that. And, uh, and also seeing our own interests perpetuated throughout the world. But when it's tied in with religion, that's really scary to me. That's really, really scary to me. And to me, you know, it seems politics and religion are the two unbreakable brainwashings of the modern day. Not even of the modern day. I mean, that's been in place since Rome as well, since long before that, I'm sure. I'm very curious about what it is that that lends people to giving away their power um, to these abstract things, you know, and... I don't know. I wonder a lot about the creation story in the Bible, um, about how really, to me, that's about our, our, our walking away, our abandonment of our relationship with nature. And the way that that story is told in the Bible as it is today very much sounds like we were abandoned, that we, you know, we were, we were, for, we were forlorn, we're unsavable. The only way to save is by appealing to higher authority. And that doesn't make any sense to me. I think we're the ones who did the abandonment. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, the, the only way I think that those stories are interesting is in how they, um, at this point, unintentionally reveal to us uh, some of the things that were lost, you know, yeah. that happened before in that transition from, yeah. you know, the the migratory life to the agricultural life, from the yeah. from the free life to the to the domesticated life, because it was out of that, you know, that that those religions came. That's all Bronze Age stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, and in that creation story, too, you know, I have to wonder again about the Western mind, the rational mind, our need to explain away the mystery constantly, our need to have words and constructs and evidence of everything to make ourselves feel a bit more secure, I think, you know, and, and that to me is a dominance as well. It's like we're we're never trusting that we will be provided for, perhaps, because we never trust, like we never actually surrender to that relationship with something greater than us. We talk about it a lot and we rationalize it, but I don't know that there's any actual surrender there because we don't have ceremony anymore. We don't have ritual. So many of our ceremonies and rituals are hollow, hollow ghost things. Oh, definitely. I mean, we, we've basically have broken our end of the bargain, you know, yes. a long time ago. Yeah. And I think, I think some of what I'm feeling right now um, that I don't necessarily have words for yet is acknowledgement of being able to see that breakage, you know, of being able to see that out of line relationship because we've been interrupted. And I, I don't have any solutions. I don't have any ideas on how to fix it or anything like that. But I know in my day-to-day -day life with where I am in the world and with how I am as a human and how I conduct my life, um, I'm spending a lot more time these days listening and that doesn't mean listening to humans. You know, I'm listening to the trees. I'm listening to the wind. I'm trying to observe. I'm trying to slow down. I'm trying to use all of my senses. And I'm trying not to distract myself. And I don't know what that's going to result in. But I do know I feel more in line with this place that I call home. Yeah, in terms of, like, talking about problems and issues and then 
um, coming up with solutions or, you know, some people say you shouldn't bring up a problem unless you can bring up a solution, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that one I feel like is, com is complete BS, you know? Yeah. But um, I, I have been wondering if perhaps it's just that we... Uh, this this culture that's making these mistakes, well, maybe we're not capable of coming up with the solution at this point. We're so far gone, so far alienated that yeah, we it, it's not gonna it's not gonna come from us. It's it's gonna come from somewhere yeah. else. And what we need to do is put ourselves into a position of readiness, you mm -hmm. know, and openness, so that we can listen and we can be ready, so that when that solution is presented to us. Uh, that we can then take it up and participate in it, you know? Well, and I think, I think, you know, even using the word solution, I have to wonder solution for whom. Oh, sure. And if mm -hmm. we're, yeah, like if we're still only talking about human centric solutions, we're going to run into the same issues over and over and over again, where it's everything for us at the detriment of everything and everyone else. And so, yeah, I, I think about, yeah, needing to listen more and needing to come to a place of humility and coming to a place of simply saying, I don't know. And in saying, I don't know, you know, and weighting ourselves from some of the burden of feeling like we have to know all the time and like we have to um, have an answer. And to me, you know, a good question stands the test of an answer over and over again. So I'm, I'm content now to ask more questions than I am to find answers. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear that one. And as for the listening for the non human voices, I think that that one is, is just so essential at this point. And that's one way in which people who live in the city are really um, handicapped. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah, we are so devoid of biodiversity here beyond what we place where we want it. You know, yeah, and I don't know what it's like in in cities there. If it's like it is in American cities, in American cities, most of the most of the, like the power lines are above ground, and so most mm. of the trees that are on the streets are trimmed, you know, mm. around around the power lines or around other things. And so mm -hmm. one thing that most people who live in the city never see is a tree that hasn't been um, oh. tamed. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Um... You know, I, I haven't been to a lot of cities in America. I've been to Jackson, Mississippi, huh. and I've been, to, yeah, and I've been to Los Angeles, and I've been to Santa Fe, but that's not really a city, and that's kind of a unique spot all on its own. Uh -huh. um, but Jackson, Mississippi, and Los Angeles were very different from where I am now. I can't speak for all Canadian cities. I mean, Toronto is a big city for sure, but um, and so is Vancouver. Although Vancouver, I find very green. But where I am right now, we have 120 kilometers of um, untamed River Valley park space right in the city. And my neighborhood that I'm in right now has trees that are over 120 years old. Nice. And the power, the power lines are buried. Um, on the outskirts of town, we've got some big, big, big power line towers that have gone up. But generally in the city, you don't see overhead power lines. Um, in the 80s, you did but I'm guessing they buried them. I didn't actually really think about that <laughs> until recently. But yeah, I remember seeing those when I was a kid, but not so much now. And um, there's a river right through the middle of the city. So there's water in the middle of the city. But that being said, 
you know, there's a bridge in my neighborhood that I walk across often. And to one side, to my right side, to the west, it would be, I'm about 10 kilometers from downtown and I can see downtown in the distance, but it's just green up until there. I would forget that I was in a city and I often call it the Emerald City, you know, because I I feel like the river is the yellow brick road and I'm walking Mm -hmm. towards the Emerald City. But then I look to the other side of me, I look to the east and there is upgraders and refineries and fire stacks and smoke and mortar. I call it mortar over there. Mm. And so I've got these two realities running alongside each other um on either side of me and yeah it's just it's just awareness that you know the what we call the civilized is always right on the door and looking to expand endlessly well yeah because we we um imbue that word civilization with a positive connotation And and there is just a literal connotation of it too, of it being well, literally that just that just means a city based culture. Yeah, exactly. You know, not yeah, saying exactly. anything good or bad, just saying, oh, that's just about people who live in cities, and cities require highly organized agriculture, uh, you know, to support them. And yeah. there's never really been a big agricultural system that hasn't depended on either slaves or peasants you know, mm-hmm. to, to keep it going either. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. The, and they, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I just say in, in the United States today, like, like the, the, the working conditions of, of the far, farm workers, you know, many of whom are, are immigrants is so close to slavery, you know, that it, it's hard not to call them that. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that kind of the unhidden, blessing of this virus in that that is all being exposed i mean it's the same up here um some of the worst outbreaks that we've had have been among migratory workers doing farm labor and also among meat processing plants as well yeah so people who are being kept in poor conditions and worked in poor conditions as well yeah yeah i mean there's been i think some awareness that um uh, that that you know the essential workers you know in quotes you know that those people are also the lowest paid and isn't there something pretty messed up about that yeah yeah absolutely and isn't that just exposing the class issues ever more clearly and that people who are sailing through this you know who haven't had their worlds rocked who had vacation homes to go to and i've heard of people spending their their quarantine time on yachts while people being paid barely minimum wage who can't get a day off who might be working three jobs are suffering are holding up the whole the whole structure of what we depend on for life and it's it's so unfair yeah and then at another level that whole structure including that agriculture that the the farm workers are working on is itself um uh just a horrible oppression upon the earth yeah yeah exactly no exactly and you know that goes into capitalism and the idea that we have to have more than we need at our fingertips and even just the idea of um future of constantly planning for a future that's unwritten and constantly hoarding away for a future that's unwritten when in reality we're robbing that same future with debt with debt did you say yes with debt you know, when I think about the printing of money, like money is not, right. it's not a thing. I mean, it is, it's a thing. It's a very important thing 
in our paradigm that we consent to, but it's not an actual resource. You can't, you can't eat it. You know, what are you going to do with it when it's worthless? And I think about my, uh, my travels in Zimbabwe in particular, where money was completely worthless. By the time somebody was paid, the inflation was so high that what they were paid in the morning was worth nothing in the evening. So that puts the reality of money into play. But when you're, when you have a system that is functioning on debt and on borrowing resources from the future, I think about what are we really borrowing from? You know, we're so focused on the here now without actually being anywhere now. We're not here now by any means. We're constantly thinking about a day that hasn't come and working towards that day that hasn't come as opposed to actually being in our day here and nourishing our day here. And I think about, I think about my nephews who were just born in January and about, you know, every time that I put something on my credit card that I don't need, that I might want, what is that taking from them? Because resources are tangible things and a lot of them are not renewable. And every time that I, that I expand my life beyond what I need, I'm, I'm robbing the ones coming up behind me. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I think about those things that way too. And it is, it's, um, and it, and it's, uh, it's so tricky because basically everything produced within this system is exploitive to one degree or another, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. there's no way to be here without being exploitive, you know? And mm -hmm. so how to come to terms with, to, with that, you know? Well, how to come, how to come to terms with that and how to live um, in better alignment. I guess, and with the knowledge that our actions do have consequences. And I think that that's something that I'm seeing contended with in a big way here in that I'm noticing a lot of grown-up people who are acting a bit like toddlers, <laughs> not having their needs met and insisting on their needs above all, other, all others and their rights. You know, I hear a lot about rights, and to me it's yeah, I mean, everybody deserves dignity. Everybody, you know, ought to be treated with respect. But what do you really deserve as as one organism on this earth? Where did that language of deserving come from? And when I hear constant assertion of rights, I hear me over everybody else. I hear the individual over the community. And that comes from cultural poverty to me. Yeah, and it's not at all an inevitable consequence of being human or being alive. It's just this current model that we're being subjected to here. Yeah, and you know, I hear people often talk about the patriarchy, like we're we're subjected to the patriarchy. I'm not sure that's the right the right word for it. I've been calling it the purearchy for a long time because I see grown men who are acting like uninitiated young boys. And so we come from a place that doesn't have initiation in our culture anymore. We come from a place that I would say doesn't have culture anymore in the way that I understand that word. And so we have people who have never left their childhoods behind. And when I see people hollering about their rights without considering their responsibilities, when I see people stomping their feet over having to wear a mask in a store out of consideration, regardless of what you think about all of it, 
when I see people, you know, throwing temper tantrums over not getting their way, I see children, I see toddlers, I see people, grown people who have not left their childhoods behind because they haven't had to. It's been catered to. I'm really glad you brought up this point about the the lack of initiation rights. I, this is mm-hmm. not discussed nearly often enough because mm-hmm. there is no way, there is no gateway, no cultural door uh, yeah. for going from childhood to adulthood in these Western societies, you know? And yeah. in the United States, there's the, oh, 16, I can get my driver's license. Oh, I'm, you know, 21, I can drink. Oh, I'm 18, right. I can buy cigarettes or whatever. But like, that, that doesn't count. That has nothing to do no. with anything like that. And I look back over my own life and I'm like, oh, I absolutely would have benefited from something, you know? Yeah. Around yeah. that puberty age to like, be like, yeah, here you go. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to show you how to go from here to there. And that a lot of that has to do with dealing with the ego because it yeah. seems like that's what a lot of the, initiation rights were about, even if they didn't use that language, was they were about taking the ego and putting it in its place so that it was no longer the leading force, but simply one element in the personality. Yeah. And I mean, as somebody who also has not been initiated, um, I can only speak about it from a objective point of view. And so, yeah, I very much understand it as putting as putting an individual in the place of uh, the larger context of life and society Mm. as well. And in that way, reaching adulthood. And so, yeah, where these arbitrary numbers came from as, you know, 18 years old, suddenly you're responsible enough to drink and suddenly, well, in Canada anyways, Mm. suddenly you're responsible enough to drink and suddenly you're responsible enough to vote. And suddenly at 18 years old, you have the ability to critical think. It doesn't work that way. You know, people, people mature and people come into being at at different ages and then without any cultural force I think to put them in context of of the grander view of life without them understanding like initiation to me too is understanding your consequence in the world and understanding your mortality in a lot of places too and without that you get people who don't understand their consequence so they act as though they don't have any but then I also look at it on the other end of the lifespan as well where you know suddenly 70 years old doesn't make you an elder it might make you an older person Mm -hmm. but when I think about these older white men who are continually voted into positions of power because there's nothing really else being put forward for the most part um, those aren't elders it doesn't doesn't mean that they have knowledge or valuable life experience. It doesn't mean that they are that they are passing down um, goodness and goodwill. It doesn't mean that they're taking care of. It doesn't mean that they're tending to a flock. It doesn't mean that they're tending to a community or a village. And especially when you get one person at the helm of 360 million individuals there's also an assumed way of life there. There's an an assumed conglomeration there where there just isn't any, there is no we, you know, you don't live the same life as somebody in North Carolina, I'm sure who doesn't live the same life as somebody in California. Like there is no we. And so I find often we, well, we, (laughs) there I am using it, the universal we right there. Mm -hmm. Um, We get stuck on, on trying to define how we are different and how we're similar without actually embodying anything 
about who we actually are, about who we are as people and who we are, where we are, because it's just too big. You know, it's globalization. It's, it's the monoculture again. So when I think about that, you know, I have a hard time even, even identifying as a Canadian, because what does that mean? I understand myself as a woman who has spent 20 years in a place that she's still learning about, who comes from people who are not from this land that I stand on. I understand myself as somebody who doesn't speak the languages of her ancestors. You know, I understand myself as somebody with certain privileges in this society, and that is entirely different than somebody who lives in Newfoundland. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just um there's um do you think that that uh it's possible having missed an initiation to somehow get something get that value later in life? I don't know. I wonder I about don't. this. I wonder about that too, and I think that that's the best thing is to wonder about that. You know, I know for myself, um not having elders and and my culture being very well assimilated at this point i've had to seek out moments of understanding my place in the universe for myself and so that has looked like me going to the back country in the mountains by myself solo mm -hmm. overnight <laughs> yeah. you know doing things that a lot of people consider crazy I have submitted myself, I will openly say I have submitted myself to uh, plant and fungal spirits. And, mm -hmm. Me too. And that is not, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and that's not in conjunction with any made-up ceremony. You know, I, I don't think that everything is for everybody. I am not a person from Peru. I don't understand Peruvian culture. I'm not going to go do an ayahuasca ceremony taking place in Edmonton. That's not what I'm talking about at right, all. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, I've... I've surrendered to the work of examining constantly why I am, how I am and who I am. And that's looked like a lot of time on my own in my early twenties in particular, I was almost monastic. You know, I was, I was none like I've spent a lot of time walking the land and turning away from uh, noise, turning away from news and turning away from, seductive stories and that includes politics that includes religion that includes a lot of writers and i i work hard at trying to understand when an idea is trying to seduce me into buying in mm. and so yeah and so for me um nature makes sense to me it always has and there was a point in my life a good decade or so where I was suffering because I was the only person in my immediate circle who had that kind of relationship with the natural world. And I, I abandoned it for about 10 years and I can't do that anymore. I, to be a, a healthy person, I can't do that anymore. So as far as if people can get that later in life, I'd like to think so, but where that comes from, I'm not sure from people who, don't have a culture anymore who don't have elders. I mean, I, I'm cautious about um, encouraging it because I don't want settler people to be a burden on First Nations people. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between asserting yourself into community as opposed to being invited. And 
you know, so I, I don't want people to go and seek initiation with people who still have it. If they're invited in, that's different. But I don't know. I mean, I, I would I, mm-hmm. I would add to that 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 are that um besides looking to other humans for elders, you know, obviously we can look to to uh, to the non-human world for elders as well. Yeah. And that's that that's that animism again, and how the inanimism is a prejudice, and that it's if that's not even in your language, you know, if that's not even in your worldview, that there's other non-human living entities among us, be them physical plants or animals or our spirits or otherwise how to break up that conditioning of telling you humans are it and there is one god i i don't know <laughs> you know and i but i also think about um all people come from indigenous people at one point or another you know the tribes of europe were colonized too before they became the colonizers and where that comes from from my understanding of things personally and from what I've been taught as well is it comes from land. It comes from listening. It comes from being in relationship and those ceremonies, all ceremonies and rituals, I guess too, I use those words fairly interchangeably, um, come from a place. And so, you know, I think about settler people not being from where they're from, but also not trying to be from where they're from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't we don't learn the language of the places that we are, and that's actually something that I'm I'm changing for myself. Um, I start I start an indigenous language in two weeks because there's often so much nuance lost in English translations that we can't even begin to speak the world into existence in this time in this tongue that we use because it just doesn't capture it. it it's not the sounds of the place. It's a I always call it a, a trawling language. You know, it's it's raked up everything from the ocean floor that it's trawled across through the ages. <laughs> and not to, not to say that it's a useless language. It's an extremely interesting language, but it has its limitations when we're trying to apply it to the world in front of us and being where we are. Yeah, I mean, English is fascinating, you know, it, it being the largest language on earth by number of words, you know, mm-hmm. and then having the two very different influences, you know, the classical languages and then the Germanic, mm-hmm. you know, I mean... It's really at least two languages jammed into one, you know, that 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 have completely different meanings. I mean, ways of meaning even. But yeah, like you bring all that over here and and you know to this to this um, hemisphere and then impose it, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And one of the people I interviewed earlier on this podcast, uh, Randy Woodley, he's a pro- professor and and um, of Cherokee background, and he talks mm-hmm. about how. One of the differences between indigenous worldviews and the Western worldview is that uh, indigenous uh, worldviews are place uh, oriented, and yes. the Western um, worldview is time oriented. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. No. I, I'm uh, I'm beginning to understand that as well as somebody who was raised in the dominant settler culture. Um, yeah. Our our orientation thing to things is very linear. I, I see that as well. And um, it's also my understanding that language is a cosmology unto itself and that it derived from a place. It is the sounds of a place. And so in order to really understand a place, you know, English is just, it's foreign here. It's completely foreign here. And the way that we use English as well um, is not English. Like it's evolving so quickly. The language changes so much and often 
the words that we're using now, thanks to writing them down and thanks to, you know, literature and dictionaries. And every time we write something down, we're, we're cementing something as the meaning and the truth. And so more nuance is lost. And so I find English now, we're so rarely even understanding each other in this language in that I say something and it's set up in, in such a binary language. I say something, so you automatically assume I'm, I'm saying, but not this, where I could be mm. saying one thing with 10 shades of other things that I don't have words for because I speak this binary language. I often say jokingly, but not, not totally jokingly, that the fact that the word maybe exists in the English language is a miracle. <laughs> it's so often, you know, if I say, if I say black, you assume I'm opposing white mm-hmm. when it's not necessarily the way. But then when I think about the binaries that I see existing about just everything in the Western world, you know, we've been set into camps, I think partially due to this language that we're using in that our, our understanding of the world is binary oppositional by language and therefore by mind. Because we're talking to ourselves in this language all the time, too. Yeah, yeah, in our own heads, you mean? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and our very, our very view of the world is set up in this language, even if we're not consciously talking to ourselves about it. Right. Like if, to declare that something is one thing suddenly erodes the possibility of it being any other things. Like if I declare that something is blue, you know that it is not red, yellow, green, anything else. Where. Or if I declare, you know, talking about inanimism and animism again, if I declare that something is a thing, is that declaring that it is alive or that it is dead? Like if there's just, there's so many spots in between that I think are lost due to this language. Yeah. And I feel like some of these things are uh, being exacerbated in um, not a helpful or productive way by the internet and by social media. Yeah, I really have, I'm really wondering a lot about social media lately, about what we're subjecting ourselves to and about what we're falling into constantly as well, just with the 24 seven news cycles and exposing ourselves over and over again to the same story that then becomes cemented, um, that then becomes the truth. You know, and I really struggle with the idea of the truth and all of us having to come to a point of agreement, which to me just feels impotent and anemic and kills off any difference and kills off the the human imagination, which I think is something we're going to desperately need to find again, you know, and I see brave people around me every day lately Um, standing up to some of the harshest rhetoric out there, regardless of whatever side you may be on, be it right or left, or, or, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of in-between. But just really challenging some of the most ingrained rhetoric and saying, no, it's not that and it's not this. It might be something else entirely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just there's, um, I mean, something has to give. And it does feel as though some things are giving. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, thank God we're not in complete control. And talking about initiation too, going back to that, um, I've heard some prominent writers in my circles anyways, uh, people that I'm exposed to 
talk about this time being an initiation and being so certain about that. And I can't say for certain that it is or it isn't. But what I wonder about more is if it is, who's to say that it's going to work? You know, mm-hmm. And so for me, the idea of trying to uphold these systems, trying to give them one less breath on life support would be a tragedy if things just went back to normal, if things just went back to everybody being okay. And what I'm expecting, and I think what I'm seeing now with people um, trying to find their way through this election cycle and just some of the frustration that I'm seeing among people of having their their clear realities broken up. Um, yeah, I'm just, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's part of it, you know, like, like yeah. I, I feel I've been, I've been experiencing more, I guess what people call brain fog this oh, year yeah. than, than I ever have before. It's not you know? even necessarily a brain fog with me. It's more like 15 15 thoughts coming in at once right. and trying to concisely narrow it down to one with words is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, oh, yeah. So, yeah, just talking about, you know, oh, right. I remember what I was talking about. Um, so, yeah, with people trying to wade through this election cycle and trying to uphold the okayness, you know, it's the, it's the thing that we're used to and not letting that fall away. I'm just prepared for, and I'm seeing it already, you know, it's, it's the post-capitalistic profiting off of disaster constantly like the latest the latest thing i'm seeing now is designer masks you know and just it's more consumerism and it's it's placed as need you're going to need this and you're going to need a new vehicle and you're going to need all these masks and you're going to need air filters and you're going to god knows what else you're going to be told that you need and again it's it's just upholding the normal it's just upholding the dominant paradigm and I think that in itself is a tragedy. It would be a tragedy if if people are more content to, if the majority of people are more content to go back to, or try to go back to some kind of life as it was without acknowledging, like, things have changed. Yeah, I think that that um, my, my feeling on it is that that will be uh, impossible. Yeah. Um, or it will be increasingly impossible for more people as time goes on, simply because there's going to be so much of the logistics of life that just don't exist like they did anymore. And so it's not going to be possible to pretend as if things are the same as they were or whatever, you know? Well, and I also have to wonder about the social consequences, too, of people who are wishing and willing to to close down discussion, I guess, and to close down the, the possibility of other realities. I mean, you've got people in the streets right now in your country for a lot of different issues. And I just have to wonder if enough people being disenfranchised and disillusioned um, is going to make the small, hopefully the small number of people that are trying to carry on as normal, unable to do so because it'll be socially unacceptable. That's what I wish to see. <laughs> I would like to see that too. I have no idea how how far away or close that is, but I feel mm-hmm. also as though this is a time of uncertainty and that it's really yeah. hard to make predictions. You yeah, know? I agree. Because mm-hmm. all those predictions are going to be based on, well, this is how it's gone before. Well, we're going into unknown territory at this point. Yeah. I mean, 
there hasn't been a, 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 a pandemic that's hit the United States like this since, you know, the flu of 1919 or whatever, you know, I guess there's some, com- yeah, right. And well, and there's some comparisons that people make with the polio outbreaks too, and how that changed, um, especially for kids, how that changed, you know, what kind of activities they could have and all that sort of thing, you know, but I, I think that just the fact all all these other things have been happening the whole time, including resources running out and like, you know, the whole manufacturing base of the United States has been hollowed out. And like, you know, I don't want to see a return of manufacturing jobs to the United States. Manufacturing yeah. is always anti-nature. It just always yeah. is, you know, Yeah. every factory to- is a rape, you know, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's just mindless. It's completely mindless. Um, I have to wonder as well about some of the comparisons being made and just, again, our understanding of time and that, yes, in a linear time span, this happened 100 years ago, but it is not the same as 100 years ago. We've got life experience on our side. We've got different generations here right now. We've got different technologies and all of that. And so, you know, I have to I don't know. My understanding of time is becoming more spiral, more spiralized. Mm. I, uh, I don't understand things as coming full circle anymore because we're not coming back to the same place. The other axis we don't think about all the time is time itself. That's the third diameter, the third axis. And so I'm, I'm struggling a lot with a lot of the comparisons of this is like it was when it was polio or this is like it was when it was Spanish flu. And on one hand, it's falling it's it's an attempt to fall out of those binaries, I guess, and also fall out of the comfort um, that comes up with, oh, we've been here before. No, we haven't been here before. We've been somewhere that is perhaps similar to this before, but there's other factors at play as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we're in an age where, you know, the 10 hottest years on record uh, all happened in like the last 15 or something. Yeah. You know? Because I feel yeah. like the two things that get ignored the most in the U.S. are um, the the vast military, just the fact of empire, right? And then yeah. the environment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think about, you know, the constant reaping of the environment, um, yeah, I think, I think just about how out of touch we are with ourselves in that context in that you know I understand I understand my body is coming from the land I understand my body is going back to the land and to put a interruption in that relationship and to treat the land as something that I only take from and I never give back to to me illustrates the disease of the west Voices for Nature and Peace is produced in the Gila River Valley, New Mexico, USA, on land that we acknowledge is illegally occupied Apache territory. The intro music is Zero G Yogi by Big Z, with narration by Kelly Moody of the Ground Shots podcast. This outro music is Trip A, also by Big Z. Commercial break narration by Nikki Hill. To become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash colibri, K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. For more information on Radio Free Sunroot programming, please visit radiofreesunroot.com.
Thank you for listening. May you find joy in your own nature and peace.